You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 113 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with the very clever Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Oh, apparently I'm clever. Why am I clever? What have I done that's so clever this week that I haven't done every other week? You're a bit unclever, actually. Oh, (laughs) all right, so I'm unclever. tongue firmly planted in cheek because last week you had some pretty big news, which you forgot to share with everyone. I did. I I, don't know, I had some kind of major brain synapse. So um, in my newsletter last week, I made the announcement that the fourth book in the Mapmaker Chronicles series is going to be published in April 2017. Woo! But some, I know, you yeah, streamers, parade balloons, mm-hmm. all of the above. And somehow I managed to forget about that when we were talking. That's last fantastic. Week. <laughs> That's so exciting. Does it's it have exciting. a title yet? No, it doesn't. I put a working title on it and we've all agreed that that's not good. So, which is something that you get in the big jobs, you know, like it's the, I I saw a conversation about this recently on Facebook, I think Annabelle Smith was asking about it and um, it was like, you know, how much input do you have into your title? And it's an interesting thing because sometimes you put the title on and it's just exactly right. So the first book in the Mapmaker Chronicle series, I called Race to the End of the World and that was just it all the way through from start to finish. But every other title that I have put on a book since then on the Mapmaker Chronicle series has had to be workshopped a little bit because yeah. sometimes as the author, you just don't always get the right feel yes. for the you know, for the series perhaps, or I'm not exactly sure, but um, it does it is a bit of a team effort because other people reading your book see things in the story that you don't necessarily see. So yeah. it's quite an interesting thing. But yes, so it is as yet untitled and I as soon as I have a title I will, of course, let everyone know, and I will remember to let everyone know, I promise. Yeah, wow. And mm. has this – so for new listeners to the podcast, this is the fourth book in the Mapmaker Chronicles series, and the Mapmaker Chronicles series is, in a sentence, Al? Uh, it's about a race to map the world and a boy who doesn't want to go. Okay. So the trilogy – the first three books, the trilogy – um, the race to the end of the world wraps up in that three book series. So I can see, you know, people going, well, what's it all going to be about? And it's an interesting thing because um, I always knew that there was more to the series. You guys might remember me talking about how much, um, how sad I was to let them go, to let all my characters go. And um, I did find myself, you know, writing the third book, writing the last bit of it very, very slowly because I'm very attached to the characters and, and to the world of Vidanya and, uh, and the race. Mm-hmm. Um, so we start, we pick up the story about six months after the race 
And the story, this this story features um, some familiar faces. Uh, it features some new faces, and it features some unexpected faces. Ooh, mm. exciting! It is exciting. It's been, uh, you know, again, uh, I think we've talked about this before, but this is I, I just love writing this series so much. It's so much fun, and um, it's been wonderful to revisit them all. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And how did you feel when you got the news? Oh, just wrapped, you know. <laughs> but of course, you know, you know me. I had actually, like, I decided in in NaNoWriMo last year that the story wasn't finished, mm. um, and so I was going to write a fourth book, which I did. And then which I which you did in NaNoWriMo. Oh, it took me about again. You know, the first draft usually takes me sort of six to seven weeks. Mm. Um, so I never win NaNoWriMo ever. We've talked about that before. Yeah. But um, I had about forty thousand words by the end of. NaNoWriMo, um, but it needed a, you know, obviously it needed another sort of, I think I wrote another 15,000 and then uh, it needed a serious edit. So, you know, I went back and redrafted it and with the help of my, you know, A-team reader, Mr. 12. So I read that aloud to him again and we sort of talked about it. Um, so I wrote it and then I said to the publisher, I think we should do this <laughs> and submitted it in, in much the same way as anybody would submit. Yes, yes. Mm. Wow, very exciting. And I can't yes. wait to hear how it all unfolds, all the steps between now and April 2017. So we'll keep you all posted. Yeah, so I'm about to start the structural edit. So probably when you talk to me next week, I'll be like, oh, why did I ever do this? But anyway, we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come yes. to it. So what have you got for us, Valerie? Anything exciting? Um, anything exciting. We have a shout out. We have a shout out to Felicity Moore and Felicity has put a review on iTunes. Thank you so much, Felicity. And Felicity has said, practical, helpful and motivational. She says, the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast is helpful to writers of all experience levels. I've been a journalist, blogger and content writer for 20 years and am now embarking on my debut fiction novel. Valerie and Alison have offered great tips that as an experienced freelancer, I know are right on the money and have even taught me a thing or two about the business. So I know I can trust their fiction writing tips and advice. Plus, Alison has published a successful YA fiction trilogy, so she's clearly knowledgeable and experienced in fiction publishing. Val is also very experienced in non-fiction publishing, so these women don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. I listen to the podcast on my daily commute, and it motivates me to get straight into writing and plotting as soon as I get home. My productivity levels are much improved since I started listening. Thanks, girls. And she also adds, also, the Australian Writer Centre course, Two Hours to Scrivener Power by Natasha Lester, got me on track fast and using this awesome software like an old hand. Do yourself a favour and subscribe to this sensational podcast. It really will help you achieve your writing goals. Wow. Gosh, that's, wow. That that, that was an essay. Yeah, I'm walking on air right now. I'm pretty happy. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, thank you so much. very, very kind. Really appreciate it because it really helps us, um, well, it's quite, very motivating, isn't it, Al? I'm, I'm so motivated. I'm ready to talk for at least half an hour, Valerie. Yeah. <laughs> Un- unusually. <laughs> if you do have, you know, 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because it really helps us in the rankings. So let's move on to the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. Uh, a few things that we can talk about. Firstly... I think you have a little mini announcement. 
Oh, yes, uh, I do have something else I must announce, and this is a little bit of a disappointing announcement, but I just need to let people know that unfortunately I've had to pull out of the ProBlogger event, uh, withdraw from the ProBlogger event due to some um, other things that are going on, and uh, I just wanted to let everyone know uh, because, you know, I've talked about the fact that I was going to be there, and unfortunately I will now not be there. However, I think that the uh, program is going to go on beautifully without me, so um, if you are going to PB event, then I hope you have a fabulous time and please tweet so that we can see what's going on I always love all the tweets that come out of that they're so useful Mm. so let's move on then to the world of writing and blogging and publishing and go to a cute little story that I read um, on thestar.com and it's it's about a children's author a Canadian children's author um, called Jean Little and about kind of how she mm, sort of first embraced the herself as a writer or discovered writing in a sense. She says that she was always uh, – I will put the link in the show notes, by the way, which you'll find at soyouwanttobearwriter.com.au. But Jean basically says that, you know, as a child, her she, she grew up in a busy household. She was often competing for her parents' attention. Her mum and dad were both doctors, very busy doctors. Little did she know that her dad probably secretly wanted to be a writer and she said she would often try and get his attention and she remembers one day she would say, oh, you know, Dad, would you like me to... He was reading the newspaper. Would, would you like me to sing for you? And he said, no, thank you, and he continued to read. And she said, would you like me to dance for you? And he said, no, he didn't even lower the paper. And her mother actually told her that interrupting someone while they were reading was equally rude as interrupting two people talking. Oh. And anyway, she gave up. She went upstairs and she thought, well, I'll just write a poem. So she wrote a poem and she came downstairs and she said, Dad, I wrote a poem and waiting for him to ignore her again. But he actually dropped the paper and let the sheets fly to the floor. And he said, a poem? Let me see it. And he read the poem and he gave her tips on the poem and gave her feedback on the poem. And she says that that was the moment that her life changed. Oh. Yes. And, you know, she went on to become a children's writer. Goodness me. Yes. Interesting how just an incident like that can, you know, can change your life. And I wonder what it is for many people who, um, what was the moment that, that made, that made them think, I think I want to be a writer. What was your moment? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. (laughs) Do you know, kids ask me this all the time. I go, when I go to school, um, do school talks and things like that. And kids always ask me, you know, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? And I think it's one of those questions. And I know the answer to that is supposed to be, you know, like Kate Forsyth, for example, who, you know, started writing when she was six and, and things like that. And I, I am, that's just not my answer. It's quite an interesting thing because I think that, um, I always liked writing and I've always, you know, I I wrote a lot of things obviously for school and I, I got great marks and that's always really encouraging. And, but I wasn't really that person who, you know, wrote novels at the age of six or anything like that. And I I think that part of it was that I always felt like writing was something, and I always say this to kids, I always felt like it was something that other people did. It was something that, you know, because I was always a mad reader. I loved reading stories, you know. And so I always felt like it was something that other much cleverer people than me um, did. And so it took me a long time, I think, to find the confidence to actually think, 
you know what, I could probably do this myself. And I think that it wasn't until I had been working as a writer in magazines for a couple of years that I thought to myself, I could try this. I could try fiction. I'm going to see if I can write my own story. And, of course, we talked about the, you know, my ill-fated attempts at romance writing before but that was kind of where I started I started writing romance novels and things I'd done you know I'd done, I done. I found a couple of diaries when I was cleaning out my study last week and there's you know there's really bad poetry in there and there's some um, you know little I used to write impressions more than anything else like I would write down things I'd heard things I'd seen so I guess I was training to be a writer my whole life um, but it wasn't until I was really in my early 20s uh, before I thought, you know what, I could do this. Yeah, I want to. I want to. I want to have said six. I want to pull you up on something there, Al, because you just said the sentence. I believe, if I remember correctly, I didn't really believe that I could be a writer until I was already a magazine writer. In the implication being that you're not a writer unless you're writing fiction. Oh no, that's that's not what I meant though. Because I was thinking, I'm talking about you know writing uh, fiction. So let's take a step me, back. Let's take a step back. When did you, what was the moment or was there an incident that made you wanted to be a magazine writer? Well, I think we discussed this in an interview a couple of years ago, but I, I wanted to be a newspaper journalist. I, I wanted to do news. That was what I wanted to do. And then I went and did work experience. But do you remember the, why? Herald. Because it, I was good at it, Val, because I got good marks in school at it. It was what I was good at. But and I think at you, school you, do, you wrote news? At school I wrote everything I wrote in my um, it was it, it was a logical to me at that time. Mm. It was the kind of it was what you did if you could write things, and I, right. what I could write. I got A's on all my essays and things like that, so it just made sense to me that I could go and you know work on a newspaper. Right. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't yes. like a burning desire. I wasn't sure. walking around sort of you know being. It was a natural progression. Like it just felt like a natural progression, and then it wasn't because I I went and tried it and I hated it. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, you know, as I said, I, I did a business course and I, it took me a while to find my way. It's a bit like the way I write my stories. It takes me a little while to find my story. <laughs> and so I try different things until I get there. And that's what's pretty much happened with me. Yeah. 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 What about you, Val? When did you know you wanted to be a writer? Tell me you were six. I probably wasn't six, but I think the seeds started being planted around when I was 12 or 13, because I, even though I was a, I read a lot, like I read novels left, right and centre, but I never had that burning desire, oh, I'm going to write a novel. I used to go to Sutherland Library after school almost every single day. And instead of studying, I used to read the magazines because they used to have magazines there, you know, at the time they were like Dolly and 19 and Mademoiselle and stuff like that. And some of those uh, overseas magazines were very expensive if you bought them from the shop. So I used to read them at the library, 17 magazine, I remember that. And I think that's where I got my taste for magazines and I thought, oh, that, you know, uh, I kind of like this idea. But it wasn't actually, and I know that this sounds really strange to people because I'm talking about Dolly. But I remember reading Dolly magazine in my teens and reading articles. And, you know, the magazine was good. It was fine. Um, But I remember reading articles by Stuart Coop. Oh, yes. And I remember reading them and thought there's something different about these articles. Yeah, he was good. Yes. And there's something, you know, this is the kind of writing that I think is awesome. And Kathy Lett, um, I, there were a couple of articles by Kathy Lett that were good too, but it was Stuart Coop's articles that made me think there's something in this, I want to do something like this. And then subsequently to that, I remember, I think it was, I was probably 16 or something, I remember reading the, it was called the National Times. Do you remember that newspaper? 
Uh, and no. it was like a financial review style kind of, it was like the Australian. You're reading this at 16. Yeah. Well, I worked in a news agent. Ah. <laughs> so that was the other thing. I had a part-time job in a news agent because I, that meant I could read any magazine I ever wanted ever, best job ever. And they let me have all of the odd magazines. So I, this is how I got my grounding in magazines because I also saw what people bought and yeah. what people responded to. Anyway, I remember reading this National Times article about Bruce Springsteen, which, you know, he was really big at the time. But the way it was written, I just thought it was poetry. I just thought this, I, I kept that article for years and years and years. I've probably still got it in the garage, actually, because I thought this is how I want to write, this just amazing feature style of, of writing. And so those, those are the things that, that really stuck in my mind, that particular article, but also... Yes, Stuart Coop's writing. Did you – I think the thing is also too that well, – like I went to a country high school and there, was, there weren't really – there was no real examples of people doing those sorts of things in my mm. life at the time. Like it, I think exposure to examples and possibilities is a huge part of what you think you can achieve. Do you yes. understand – do you know what I mean? Oh, for sure. So it wasn't really until I started – I started working in a publishing house um, as a secretary, Electronics Australia magazine, at um, about 18. And it wasn't until I was actually there and exposed to people – I mean, and we were talking about magazines like modern fishing, modern boating, you know, mm. that kind of stuff. Mm. But these were people that were doing this stuff every day. And when you're surrounded by people doing it and you see that people are doing it – because, you know, you're reading magazines and Lisa Wilkinson, I think at the time, was editing Dolly or one of them. Mm. And um, she just seemed as far away way as the moon I mean I know she came from Western Sydney and she probably you know all those sorts of things but from my perspective it was a bit like it was again something that other people did so I think Mm. that's one of the things I really try to talk about when I go to my um, author talks and things particularly when I go to ones at the local schools here you know I say to them I'm from here you can do this you know it's that kind of thing because I, I I think that's something that in regional you know, places, not so much anymore because of the internet, but back in those days, there were no examples. And so, you know, you kind of got to find your own way. And that's what I mean by writing my own, I was working my way into my own story, I think. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Mm. All right, well, we let, we should move on Ooh, to We should move next. on. God, we're banging on, aren't yeah. we? Sorry, <laughs> our next, team. Our next link is from The Atlantic, and it's called Women Are Writing the Best Crime Novels. Of mm. course, that's a little bit of clickbait there. But yeah, basically, right there. yes, this article is saying that a lot of the crime novels these days are far more nuanced and far more psychological as opposed to, you know, um, a, a, a cranky villain murdering someone and like in like the kinds of crime novels that used to be in days gone by. These are a little bit more domestic and um, we're referring to things like Gone Girl and you know, Girl on the Train and stuff like that. And it's just an interesting, um, uh, interesting take on the rise and rise of, of these kinds of novels. And they, the article says the female writers, for whatever reason, don't much believe in heroes. So you know how usually there's a villain and then there's the protagonist who's the hero? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it goes on to say, which makes their kind of storytelling perhaps a better fit for these cynical times. Their books are light on gunplay, heavy on emotional violence. Murder is de rigueur in the genre, so people die at the hands of others, lovers, neighbours, obsessive strangers, 
but the body counts tend to be on the low side. And it's true, don't you think, that so many of the crime novels that are coming out these days are that that subtle, nuanced, domestic thriller. Mm. Yes, I do. And it's interesting because I, I'm not sure if we – I can't remember if we actually talked about this or if I just imagined we talked about this, but <laughs> um, the Pink Fibre Book Club last month read a book called An Isolated Incident by Emily Maguire. Did we mm. talk about that at all? I can't remember. It's an Australian novel. It turns the crime novel on its head and it's one of the most interesting – because, you know, I read a lot of crime. I really like crime mm. um, as a genre and it's, I have to say that that particular book was one of the most interesting uh, books in that genre that I've read in a long time because of the perspective, because of the point of view. And I think that that's possibly what women do. But I, I have to say that I, I don't think that um, that male crime writers are going anywhere anytime soon. Like I really no. love, I love, you know, Ian Rankin. I love Adrian McKinty. I love uh, Michael Robotham is doing amazing things, you know, Australian yes. crime author again. I, I think it's, you know what I think is the brilliant thing? I think that it's great that the market has expanded enough that these kind of more nuanced books, are, it's not just about straight police procedurals anymore like it used yes. to be. Um, and I think that it's fantastic that it's opening up like this. But, you know, female crime writers, like, you're talking about Ruth Rendell, Val McDiarmid, yeah. you're talking about P.D. James. Like, some of these um, women have been writing brilliant crime novels for a very long time. So I don't think it's necessarily a recent thing. I think it possibly what Gone Girl, which I did not love, I have to admit, you and, just between you and me, um, <laughs> you and me and the lamppost, um, um, I think that what those books have done has is, is blown apart a little bit what a crime novel necessarily is. Yes. And brought a lot of new, like the number of people that have come up to me recently, it's quite hilarious. I have a lot of friends who don't read a lot, which is, you know, really interesting. And, you know, they're like, oh, my God, have you read, you know, The Girl on the Train? And I'm like, yep. And they're like, I just loved it and I've gone looking for more books like it. Really? Yeah. And they're like, what do you call those? You know, and I'm like, well, they're like a thriller. You know, look for that sort of area. I'll give you a list of names. You know, here you go. Go forth and enjoy. Um, So it's a really interesting thing. Those books are bringing non-readers to reading, which I just think is, hello, the best possible outcome. It's like the gateway drug. Yes. Mm. Yes, taking them into deeper and deeper and more hallucinogenic moments. Yes. (laughs) Not that I would know about that, but anyway. No. um, Let us move on. (laughs) (laughs) Just before I get myself into trouble. To something a little bit different. It's a post that I found in The Telegraph and it's called Essay Writing Industry Booms as Students Demand Tailor-Made Coursework. And essentially it is just, it's simply a story on the huge and massive popularity of students using essay writing services. So they pay money um, so that their university essay or their dissertation or whatever gets written by someone else. And let's not, let's not, can we just not even go any further with this? This just annoys me. Mm -hmm. Can you hear Procrasty Pop? I can. Hello, Procrasty Pop. How are you? We love you. He's obviously chasing down bad guys. Oh, yeah, that's okay because we don't want the bad guys coming oh, yeah. and interrupting us on our podcast. There's probably a, there's probably a random kookaburra in the backyard or something. It's all right. Sorry. Like, <laughs> the, well, now that oh, it looks, sounds like Procrasty Pup has stopped. I think so. Good yeah. on you, Procrasty Pup. Yeah, You're look famous, at, you know. It's just keeping me safe. 
Yeah, keeping you safe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, okay. If the, it, now, the industry is supposedly worth, and I mean, this is a British uh, publication, a hundred million pounds. Okay. I like, seriously, who are these students who are paying money to get their essays written? You were in the middle of a rant or you're about to embark on a rant. No, no, I, just, I just think, well, you know, it's it's slack, it's lazy. I mean, what what good does it do you? Yeah. Like you end up, you know, you know, whatever, you get your degree, good. I, I mean, I just, it just, it just smacks of, I don't know. I mean, it's cheating. It let's, is. let's call it what it is. It's cheating. And, you know, it just annoys me. And if anyone is thinking, if any, if there are some students out there listening to this and you're thinking of using an essay writing service and you might think, well, everyone else is doing it. Well, you know, that's probably what Lance Armstrong said as well. <laughs> but seriously, it doesn't do you any favours at all. What you learn from the process of writing that essay is immeasurable and will st- and those skills will stay with you for life. I know I sound yeah. like a grandmother here, but it's so true. Mm. And I'm very concerned that so many students are using it. It says here that, because um, All Answers is one of those services, and in 2008 there were seven people working there in a single house. Now they have 50 full-time members of staff and 20 people in quality control who sit down and read the essays all day. And seriously they may well provide a decent service i don't know i've i've never used them but you are doing yourself a disservice if you outsource this mm. yeah it's yeah just i say <laughs> to that <laughs> all right let us move on to our word of the week okay what have you got for us val i'm just ready to go now that I've had my momentary rant there I'm just I'm poised to be calmed and soothed by your word of the week well this word of the week is one you've already heard before but you may not know of its origins Hmm. and maybe this is a calming and soothing words or the effects of this word are calming and soothing to some people because the word is nicotine nicotine (laughs) yes I I know that everyone is familiar with this word, Mm. but did you know, and obviously it's the stuff that's in cigarettes, Mm. uh, among other things, did you know that everyone, um, that the word is actually named after a Frenchman called Jean Nicot, as in N-I-C-O-T. And back in 1560, he was an ambassador to Portugal and he was sent, and he sent some tobacco as a gift to the French court, and that's how the word nicotine was born. Because obviously, everyone in the French court had a sample of tobacco and kind of got addicted or loved it or something. <laughs> right. There you go. Nicotine. Well, I would never have got that Val, So that's a whole new world, right yes. there. A whole new world. Do tell us who is our writer in residence this week. Oh well, this week, uh, look, I had a chance to talk to the delightful, and she really is delightful, Belinda Morell, who is one of Australia's most successful children's authors. Um, she writes a phenomenal number of books. We talk in, in great depth about, you know, her books and how many she's doing. She has a chapter book series as well as um, a time slip series, of which she's doing uh, one a year. And um, we had a great chat about it. She has been uh, writing children's books for quite a while. She's part of a writing family. She's actually Kate Forsyth's sister and their brother also writes. So yeah, we had a really rich, she's another one of those. She knew she wanted to be a writer at six types. So it was very, very interesting chat and um, I hope you enjoy it.
Belinda Morell is a best-selling, internationally published children's author with a legion of loyal fans and a history of writing in her family that spans over 200 years. Her 21 books include the Sunsword Fantasy Trilogy, as well as a newly released Lulu Bell series for younger readers. She's also known for her collection of time-slip tales, including The Sequin Star, The River Charm, The Locket of Dreams, The Forgotten Pearl, and others which have been re recognised rather through a host of awards. Her new book, The Lost Sapphire, is her latest time-slip tale and has come out only in the last week or so, I believe. Yes, Monday. Monday, there you go. Yep. We're all over it. Um, all right, so welcome to the program, Belinda. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much, Alison. I'm really excited about it. All right, so let's start right back at the beginning. The yep. first book that you had published was, I believe, the first book in the Sunsword Fantasy Trilogy. How did That's that come right. about? Well, I had been working on that book for about two years and I actually wrote it for my own children. So I've got three kids and uh, they were in primary school at the time and they were voracious readers and they loved fantasy adventure. And so I sat down and wrote that book for them. And when I'd finished it, I thought I'd be very, very brave and I'd send it off to Random House. And I was just <laughs> absolutely do. delighted when a few weeks later, um, my publisher rang me, Zoe Walton rang me from Random House and said, Belinda, how do you feel about signing a three book deal? <laughs> And, of course, I was over the moon and <laughs> delirious with excitement. As you would be. And then you had yes. to write the other two. <laughs> yes, that's right. But um, And it took me – I had to do it a lot faster than the two years it took me to write the first one, of mm. course. So um, that's when I decided to give up my um, day job as a, a freelance journalist and travel writer and just focus on writing children's books full-time. And I've been doing that ever since. Wow. So you actually, like, right from the start, you were like, I'm just going to do this. Yes. Okay. It had been a dream that I'd had for ages and I thought my accountant thought I was insane mm. uh, because I was giving up a you know really a well-paid um, job. But I thought if I don't give this a really good crack now, I might regret it for the rest of my life and I didn't want to waste the opportunity and I thought I can always go back to what I was doing before but I just really wanted to um, you know, give it a good shot. And what made you think I can write a fantasy novel? Like what made you think I'm going to sit down and write my kids a book? Well, it's a bit funny because I do come from an unusual family. So mm -hmm. I obviously come from a family of writers. As fam um, in my family, I've had writers for generations. And my brother and sister are both um, published, award-winning, internationally published authors. And so I kind of went, oh, you know, what, what, what could be hard about it? So, <laughs> what could be hard? I'm being exactly. Left so, um, I just, so I just sat down and did it. So, yes, I was um, probably quite unusual in that way. But I guess I just had that sort of family you know, books had been in my family for such a long time and I'd been a writer, I'd been working as a journalist and a technical writer for years, so it's not like I was starting from scratch. Okay. So you began writing fantasy. Where did you go from there? Did you go to your time slip tales after that? Yes, I did. So I wrote the three books in the Sunsword trilogy and they did really well and they were released in America, which was fantastic, and um, they were bestsellers, which was great. And so Random House said to me, fantastic, Belinda, what's your next book going to be? And it was actually, my first time slip book was a book I'd actually started writing probably a few years before that and I'd started and it was a bit hard. So I'd, I put it away in the bottom drawer and it was kind of collecting dust there. So when I was trying to think what my next project would be, I got this manuscript out, dusted it off and read it again. And I was really intrigued by this whole idea of, of time, slipping back in time and the links between the past and the present and things like that. So um, I wrote The Locket of Dreams and that was the first book in my time slip series and, and that did really, really well and was shortlisted for lots of awards and I started getting all these letters from kids and uh, I just decided there was obviously I'd struck 
some chord with children with this particular idea of time flip. So I decided I was going to write a couple more and sort of make it like a series, but each book was standalone with different characters and different period of history. Mm. And so that, that was kind of how I started writing the time slip books. Okay, so she sort of realised right from the beginning once you got such a great response to them that they would be like a thing for you, that this was something yes. you'd go on with. Okay. Yes, I think so. I think it was just um, the letters I got were just so passionate from these girls just saying, I love this. I love it. And it's, I've never read anything like this. And, can, you know, can you please write more books like this? So it was this, so while I had lots of kids that loved the Sunsword trilogy and it went well, I didn't get quite that sort of impassioned response that I, I got from my time slip books and I still get now. Wow. Okay. So tell us about the latest one, The Lost Sapphire. How does, what's the basic premise and how does it work? Oh, The Lost Sapphire. So it's the seventh book in my time slip series and it's set in the modern day um, period and also back in 1922. Mm -hmm. So in the modern day period, it's about a girl called Marley and Marley's gone down to Melbourne to spend the summer with her dad very reluctantly because her mum's had to go overseas for business and she's desperately missing all her friends back home. And so Marley's down in Melbourne feeling rather sorry for herself. But then she discovers this intriguing mystery and her family's about to inherit this grand abandoned old mansion called Riversley on the banks of the Yarra River and she becomes quite fascinated with this kind of this mystery and the secrets of the house and she sets out to try and solve solve those mysteries and she meets a a boy who has his own links to Riversley and so the two of them sort of work together to to sort of um, sleuth the mysteries of the past. And then back in 1922, it's about a 15-year-old girl called Violet Hamilton and her family is incredibly wealthy and they live at Riversley and she has this life of luxury with extravagant balls and picnics and boating parties. Um, But over one summer, she sort of, um, I guess she grows up and and tries to find out what's important to her and she has all these um, new ideas about, about women and about society and about culture and um, the, the, the differences between the very wealthy and the, and the very poor. And so the 1920 section is all about herself discovering herself and who will her sister Matt choose to marry and what will Violet do to change her world. And she also, um, they have an army of servants that look after them, and one of them is this young um, Russian chauffeur called Nikolai. Mm-hmm. And Nikolai has this sort of breathtaking secret that Violet needs to discover. So. Gosh. It's also about family secrets and mysteries and, um, and and the secret of the lost sapphire ring. So that's where the title comes from. So when you set out to write a story like that, do you start with the historic angle or do you start with the contemporary tale? Do you start with the character? Like, where do you begin? Uh, it, it's sort of a very slow, evolving process for me. So I start partly with a time in history that I'm really intrigued by and but also the setting I used to be a travel writer so I think the setting's really important to me mm. and I was first obsessed with this idea of um, abandoned houses and I came across a couple you know how when you're writing something and then you, things seem to crop up all the time just because you're thinking about them and yeah. this series of abandoned houses and it was also this link to the secret garden which is a book I loved as a child and mm. I was talking about it with my publisher this idea of these beautiful old classic books that that kids still seem to really love today, even though they're, they're very old. So this idea of discovering a secret garden. So they were the two ideas I started with. So it was all about the setting. And then I started to think about the characters. And, um, and it slowly evolved over many months of research. And I, 
thought, I don't know why, but I decided 1920s was the time I wanted to set my historical period because I think it was post-World War One, and there was just so many changes going on and this idea of the grand old aristocracy of Melbourne living on one side of the Yarra River and just across on the other side of the Yarra River were the slums of Richmond. And it was literally a bridge apart. And um, so to me that was just a fascinating, again, the setting and then what was happening in the 1920s that then um, kind of, I guess, my characters created from were created from there because I wanted to have a, a young girl who was really not just accepting of, of the way things had always been, but was really questioning um, what was fair and wanting to change her world and um, how she set about doing that. And so Violet Hamilton is a character I really, really love because she's so, you know, sort of passionate and determined and, and um, quite intriguing. So how do you research the historic stuff? Are you, you know, in the library going through dusty old books or are you Googling? Well, what do you do? Oh, Google. You've got to love Google. Do got, I don't know how anyone, well, I know how they researched it before, but it's, um, I use Trove a lot, which is the National yeah. Library and they've got all these newspapers online there. Um, I get lots of books and I, I search for books, read lots of memoirs, um, letters, magazine articles, newspaper articles. The social pages of the 1920s, I just spent hours reading all the social pages and finding out what, who was doing what and where and when. And it was just fascinating. Um, so that's how I start with my research. And of course, being historical, there is a lot of research because even things like the day, the day that it was a full moon, I had to make sure that when I was writing my scene on that day, that there was a full moon, if that's what, what there was on that date back in 1922. So I am very, um, I try to be very meticulous with my research. Yes. Would you get letters about that if you didn't? Oh, absolutely. I've had (laughs) had letters from teacher librarians saying, were egg beaters even invented in 1895? And I've had to email back and say, yes, they were invented in 1877 and or whatever (sighs) year it was. And, And, of course, you know, that I've been to historic kitchens to see and I've cooked in um, I've cooked in old Argo fuel stoves and and things like that to just sort of make sure that my process is is sort of as accurate as possible. Not that I want to beat kids over the head with historical detail, but just so that I know it's right. So you obviously enjoy the research, like it's clearly yeah. a thing that you that you like to do. But um, how do you know when you've done enough research? Uh, I think when my question. deadline starts looming and my <laughs> I'm going, oh, I'll never finish this book if I don't start writing. But I do feel that sometimes when I try to write earlier in the process, I find it very hard to write because I don't know enough about my characters and I don't know enough about my setting. And so I think that as I do that research, my setting comes alive, my characters come alive. And, um, and so I know that that's when it's time to start writing because it just becomes, you know, I know their stories by then, but it does take me... It does take me quite a long time to actually get inside that world so thoroughly that I know what's happening. It's interesting. So you're really like absorbing the world, aren't you? You're sort of putting yourself right into it before yes. you before you start. Okay. Yeah. So so is that that is that what you would? I mean, your writing process. Are you? Because um, I know your sister Kate is a very world renowned plotter of enormous proportion. Are you also that? Are you planning your stories out in advance? So you know. In, yes. Yes, I think so, because I think the way that I work with my publisher, which I think many authors do, but not all do, um, is that I actually have to, I have to present um, a pitch to my publisher and I sign a contract based on my three-page synopsis. So to pitch that, I need to know the beginning, the middle and the ending of my story. I need to know my setting and I need to know my characters. Otherwise, I don't get my advance. So um, I think that when, when... 
and that's how my publisher likes to work. They they plan a year or so ahead and they sign you up for multiple contracts. So they need to know what I'm working on and they need to be happy with that and approve that. And so I know some authors just sort of write their book and then they go out to see where they can sell it or, or that they show it to their favourite publisher when it's finished. But for me and for Kate... Um, it's all done. It has to be all planned out before you start writing because mm. um, the contract's signed so, you know, months before I actually start writing the book. So mm. it's um, it's important to be able to plan really thoroughly because you've got to have it, it it's got to sound like a fabulous book in three pages rather than, and you haven't written it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this random idea. Yes. Um, <laughs> do you write every day? Are you... I try to write every day, and but I have different patterns throughout the year. So I have um, just the way it works with the marketing. So I tend to have uh, my major book normally comes out around now, which is May, around the time of the Sydney Writers' Festival and, and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So at this time of year, I have lots of touring, lots of events, lots of school visits, bookstore events and things like that. So I'd, I'd be doing that um, a lot of the time, and it's a lot of tripping away from home and it's a lot of weekend work because you're in the bookstores doing signings on Saturdays or launch events or whatever it might be. So I try to write at this time, but my head is really not um, really into the writing at that Mm. point. And then, of course, later in the year we have Book Week, which is when, as a children's writer, you're just booked up for weeks doing school visits around um, Book Week, which is fantastic because it gives you a chance to get out there into the schools and meet the kids and talk to them about what they love. And it also is a really you know, great source of income as well to be um, earning the money from all the school visits. And then there's odd festivals and things during the year. And so um, then around those kind of marketing waves, um, then I set aside dedicated time for writing where I just try to focus really hard on um, on, on actually writing. So I think I try to do the a lot of the research say around the time a book's coming out because it's easy for me to read or um, take notes or whatever while I'm actually doing all those events and read on planes or in airports Um, and then um, I have some time that I set aside where I just try really hard um, certain months where I go these are writing months and I try not to do too many events in that in that particular time and um, and then I love the summer because I tend to have the kids on school holidays and I take a pile of books to the beach and read a lot and relax and spend time with the kids and do things, but I'm still thinking about um, the projects that I've got coming up. So, yeah, so it's just kind of like, you know, very much a yearly uh, routine as well as a, a daily or a weekly routine. So you still have, um, you've still got obviously kids at school if you're looking at school holidays and things like yeah. that. Are you, so are you, are you still, um, do you still feel like you're kind of writing around them as well? I mean, is, is sort of yeah. fitting in family, children, you know, writing. Is, do, you, do you find that a juggle? Like how do you manage all that? Oh, it is a juggle and it's hard sometimes because, for example, this week's Sydney Writers Festival week, the big glamorous opening party and I had to choose between going to the big glamorous cocktail party down at the wharf with all the lights and all the famous VIPs or coming home and cooking dinner for my son who had exams starting the next day and was feeling a little bit um, oh. a little bit needy and a little bit nervous and whatever. And so I thought, well, the right thing to do is to come home and, um, and give him support through his um, his exams because these are, you know, particularly um, important ones. So, yeah, so it is, it's always been a juggle. And I think when I started out, I used to do school visits within a sort of half-hour radius of home when the yeah. kids were really little and then an hour and then, and yeah, then it yeah. sort of extended from there. But it's a lot easier now that they are older because you can, I can actually, you know, go to 
I was up in Armadale and Tamworth for a week, a couple of weeks ago. I was in Tasmania earlier in the year. I'm down to Melbourne in a week. I'm down to Tasmania again in a couple of weeks. So um, it's much easier now to do that. But when the kids are younger, I actually did very little travel away. It was mostly just what I could do during school hours. Yes, it's not easy, is it? And did you were you doing your writing, um, like particularly when you were writing the first book, were yes. you kind of, is, was that like middle of the night stuff that you were yes, doing? Yes, it was very much when the kids were asleep. So, yeah. you know, I'd, I'd have my day job and I'd, you know, do all the kids' stuff um, outside their school hours or their preschool hours and then I'd tuck them up into bed and send them off nice and early and then I could get, <laughs> sit at my computer and, and, um, and just, right for as long as I could keep my eyes open. All right so as we've just discussed you do a lot of school visits workshops and other presenting work it's a it is actually a key part of the job for a children's author particularly as as you say once the kids get a bit older. Uh, Is it something that you enjoy like do you enjoy doing it? I do I really enjoy doing it when I started out I was a bit nervous um, but I actually love it I love the kids enthusiasm and their passion and I love um there, you know, you get out into schools and there are kids that come up to you, you're my favourite author in the world and I'm so excited to meet you. It's been a, my in dream for years to meet you or, or things like that and you're just going, wow, isn't this cool? And um, even kids that have never read any of your books, um, then they get really excited about them and they might write to you afterwards or, or, or whatever it might be. And the other thing that I love is sometimes I get letters from parents after I've been to a school and the parents telling me that actually I've inspired their child, their son or their daughter to, 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 to read my books or to take up reading when they didn't read before. And, and sometimes it's just fascinating to find out the, you know, the ongoing effect of that, how you know, kids' marks go up because they're mm-hmm. suddenly reading more and their comprehension improves and, and things like that. So it's quite amazing when you get these wonderful letters from parents just saying, oh, thank you so much, you've, you know, you've changed my child's life or you changed our life or or whatever it's just so um so incredible and to get that feedback that what you're doing the work that you're doing is actually changing lives is is something that I find incredible I find it interesting that you say that you used to be nervous because I've seen you in action and you're like a seasoned professional um (laughs) you just look like you've been you know doing it for years yeah is it something are you are you always developed do you have to kind of constantly develop new workshops and things to keep it interesting or do you just have a kind of a few tried and true favorites that you do all the time oh I think um it's a mixture of both um I think it's really important to kind of keep changing up so that that it's not boring Mm. so I don't get bored and and that you get to the point where um it might um you know you might be doing things over and over again so for example on Saturday I'm doing a writing workshops at a local school and I've done them every year for the last four or five years so mm. there are kids that are coming back and coming back and coming back so obviously you can't be doing the same old same old or they'd mm. be bored to tears mm. um, so you've got to kind of keep it fresh and trying to look for new ways to keep kids engaged and I think that's one of the things I love about working with kids is they don't cut you any slack really <laughs> you've got to <laughs> you really they keep you on your toes because if, if the presentation's not good or the workshop's not good they don't you know, they, they get bored very quickly. So you've got to keep them really engaged. And so I really enjoy that challenge. Hey, you can tell by the amount of wiggling going on in the room. Yes. Yes. Or just How it's travelling, can't you? You don't want anyone yawning or <laughs> falling asleep or anything like that. You've got to see them. I love, sometimes one of my greatest challenges is going into big 
um, assembly hall full of boys and girls and you've got kindies to year sixes and you might start talking about Lulabelle and you see the year six boys start rolling their eyes and going, oh, for goodness sake, and then five minutes later they're all leaning forward in their seat with their mouths hanging open waiting to hear what you're going to say and I love sort of seeing that transition with kids when you can actually really suck them in. So what are the three main questions that kids ask you all the time? Like you've done so many of these things now, you must Oh, yes. They love asking what my favourite book was as a child. Yes. That's one of the things they're all fascinated with every time and someone what, will ask that, and it, sometimes then? several times. So I always tell them that I loved C.S. Lewis, um, particularly The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, was really inspirational for me as a child. And I loved the way that complete feeling of disappearing into a different world, into the world of Narnia. So that's one of the questions. The other question they always ask is, what is my favourite book of my own? And um, that's always a tricky question because I tend to tell them it's actually whatever the latest book is because that's the one you're obsessed with. So obviously now that's The Lost Sapphire. And the third question, uh, I think often (laughs) they love to ask how much money you make. Mm, That's always a bit popular, yes. How do you respond to that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do this really... um, detailed and long um, explanation of exactly how much of each book an author gets and so I start off with the well you know the book you might be $18 and you know we've got CAC GST and then that goes to the publishing out of that they've got to pay for the printing and the design and the editor and I go on and then by the time the time you get down to the author gets you know 10% or if it's a Lulubel you know um, less than that because I share it with the illustrator mm. and by that stage they're either have their eyes glazed over or they're just going heavens it's just like a little economics lesson <laughs> on the <That's> <laughs> what I and then thought of boring about, them into yeah. submission <laughs> I had never considered that so <laughs> Um, so, okay, so you've actually got, like, as you say, you've got the Lulu Bell series, um, which is sort of more chapter books for younger readers, and you've got your time slip books, you've got the fantasy, um, obviously the Sunsword trilogy is still out there doing its Yes, thing, it's, yeah, it's still going really well, which is yeah. fantastic. It's 10 years old now, so that's um, fantastic that it's still, um, still being read and, and still selling well, so that's fantastic. So how, how do you... How do you work that publishing schedule in the sense that you're doing, as you say, a, a, you know, the, the Lost Sapphire's out in May, when yes. your last Lulu Bell was only out not so long ago, I believe? No, that? that's right, yes. Um, so with the Lulu Bells, um, what I've been doing is actually writing one major book every year for the last 10 years. So mm-hmm. I've, I've got 10 essentially 10 novels out. Mm-hmm. And then around that, I've been doing smaller projects. So Lulu Bell, um, they're... They're quite short, mm-hmm. and um, so I and I also sort of try to fit those in around um, just when I have you know a little bit more time or or whatever. So with that series, I actually started writing them a couple of years before they came out, so that I could sort of get we wanted to bring them out quite quickly, oh, and right. so that gave me the time to sort of work on it. So I worked on it for a year or eighteen months before we bought. Um, the illustrator Serena Geddes in and then it was very collaborative we worked worked together very closely on what the series would be and um, so that then the the books were coming out sort of I think we've had 13 books out in three years and um, and then a couple of bind ups and I'm even getting my own Lulu Bell watch Oh, a few weeks. How exciting. Uh, Target is launching a box set of Lulu Bells with a little wristwatch with a Lulabelle character on the face so wow. I can't wait to see that that's going to be amazing so you'll be wearing your Lulabelle watch with pride oh next time we yes see you. the new fashion statement <laughs> 
Did you find the process of working with an illustrator to be, like, was that a challenge for you in the sense that you've gonna been doing your own just words, words, words all this time? Yes. Was the concept of bringing Serena in, was that, any, was that a challenge? Yeah, it was very much so because the Lulabelle series is very much based on my own childhood. So it's about a girl growing up in a vet hospital. And so a lot of the adventures are based on things that actually happened to me as a child or things that I've done with my own children. So it's very family-based. And I know from other authors, in fact, I earlier did four picture books um, and I was really disappointed because I had no say in the artist and and how the art was done. And, um, And I was a bit disappointed with them so I was quite nervous about Lulabelle because I felt like it was really really important to me and um and Random House was great so I'd written the first four books and then they said we're going to start looking for a an illustrator but they assured me I had the right of refusal so um and so luckily um Serena did some roughs and they weren't quite right the first roughs, but you could just see that she just had this beautiful sensitivity and warmth about them that I was really excited about. And so I just loved what she did with the um, illustrations for Lulu Bell. Perfect. Well, that makes it a bit easier, doesn't it? Oh, yes. It's been a joy working with her, absolute joy. And, and I was so nervous when we sort of started the process. So, oh, um, yes, it's I've great. seen you guys do, um, do presentations and things at a couple of things, and it looks like you're having a lovely time together. So that's always you know, such a nice thing for the kids as well to see that, I think. Yes, I think it is, and we do have lots of laughs, and we've done a lot of tours together, so we might be driving around Melbourne, doing visiting lots of schools, and we actually are sitting in the back laughing and saying, oh, wouldn't it be great if we did a Lulabelle pyjama party, and then I'll go, yeah, that's a great idea, and, and so we kind of come up with some ideas together as we're driving around or seeing each other, which is really, um, really fun. That's fun. So, um... So The Lost Safari is obviously out there at the moment. What are you currently working on? Have you started your next thing? I have. So the next thing that I'm working on is a whole new series. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's really important to you know to start with fresh projects. And while I absolutely adore writing the time slip books, I think it's time for a little change of direction. And mm-hmm. the same with the Lulabelle. I love the Lulabelle books, but I think it's time now to sort of do something completely fresh. Wow. So what I'm... Um, working on is a series um, for kids just a bit older than Lulabelle. So Lulabelle's junior fiction about six to nine years old, so that very early early reader fiction. And so what I want to do is for slightly older kids, sort of about eight to ten, and a series about um, friendship and about um, set around a main a main character and a group of friends and and work from there. So it's in the very very early stages at the moment, but I'm really enjoying sort of a fresh set of characters and a fresh challenge and, and it's quite different writing for different age groups so it's quite um, it's quite tricky to get it right mm, it would be alright so I guess we'll finish up today with our you know famous well I you know I'm calling them famous they're probably not really famous at all but um, three top tips for aspiring authors well my got? three tips all start with tea oh and I think it's quite clever because it's easy to remember so Writing, of course, is all about talent, and most people who have a lot of passion for writing, of course, do have talent, but mm-hmm. that's not enough. Okay. So techniques the next thing, which is just practicing and practicing and practicing and doing workshops and honing your skills and working on your craft. And the third thing, which I think is the most important, is tenacity, because 
there are so many great writers out there. There's lots of people who can write beautiful stories. But I think to succeed as a writer, you just have to have bucket loads of tenacity, which is the determination just to keep going and to pick yourself up when you get knocked down and to not not be disheartened when things don't quite go your way because I don't think people realise it actually takes years and years and years of writing to actually, you know, be good enough to be published and then when you, once you've been published, it's just the beginning of the journey. It's just still lots and lots of hard, hard work, so lots of tenacity. Have you ever, like, just judging our conversation earlier, have you experienced the, you know, the sting and pain of rejection? I think um, I've been incredibly lucky in my publishing journey in that my very first manuscript was picked up mm. straight away and very quickly and I know that that is very um, upsetting to a lot of other authors who have been trying to get published for years. But I had also been working as a writer for, mm. you know, for years before that. So, you know, I've been writing for newspapers and magazines and I've been writing te- uh, technical books, textbooks and things like that. So it wasn't an overnight success. I'd, I'd been working for decades really on my writing and I started writing when I was eight. So mm, <laughs> I just okay. have, so you have put been in a writing lot of a long time. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think over that time I've had my fair share of setbacks and knockbacks and things mm. like that. And even as a published author, you can get really excited about an idea for a book and then you go and talk to your publisher and they say, oh, you know, Belinda, that sounds great, but actually, you know, what else have you got? <laughs> and so you do... <laughs> You do, but luckily for me, I don't have to write the whole book and get that rejection because of the way I work with my publisher. Yeah. It's, again, I've, I've been working on an idea and I've come up with a three-page synopsis and we're working off that. So mm. if it's not strong enough to sell off the three-page synopsis, then it's, um, you know, then it's back to the drawing board. Mm. Okay. All right, well, thank you so much for your time today, Belinda. We really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck with all the um, promotional stuff and the various bits and pieces that you're doing. I hope you find some time in the next month to get some uh, actual writing done. That would be good. And um, yes. yeah, we'll um, look forward to watching your progress and seeing what the new series is all about. Thank you so much, Alison. It was lovely talking to you. Great interview, Al. I see that um, I've been seeing a lot about the Lost Sapphire on social media, so people are certainly gaining a lot of interest in it. They are, and she's um, so Belinda is. Uh, she doesn't do Twitter, but she's very active on Facebook, and mm. you know she's been sharing. She's had quite a lot of. Uh, Interestingly, quite a lot of print support, a lot of, you know, a couple of newspaper articles and various things. She's, uh, she's very good. Uh, as I said, she's been around for, for a little while. She's made some great connections and she's, she's, uh, the publicity she's getting is, is terrific. Yeah, and I think mm. ProcrastiPup was very excited to hear that interview too. <laughs> Procrusty Pup is a little bit overexcited today. There are there are several thousand million. I think the it's been raining and it's brought uh, yes. the birds out because uh, the worms are out. So you know he's he's ever optimistic. He thinks he's going to get himself a bird one day. He hasn't worked out that they have wings and he does not. But anyway, well, except one day when we were in living in country Victoria, Groucho happened to be there, and word, birds do have wings, as you say. However, it doesn't help when they happen to fly straight into Groucho's mouth. No. Yeah, they were just, they were just dive-bombed right into his mouth. It was just one of those That's just Darwin freaky, at work. Yeah, right freaky Darwin. things. I'm sorry, silly bird, silly bird is gone. Silly bird, but the bird was part of a family of about five other birds who then decided they wanted Groucho to die. Yeah, and, fair yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and for the next oh, month... Uh, Groucho, who would always run around the whole backyard, just sat under the veranda for the entire month because he knew the birds were waiting for him. Yeah, well, you know, 
Mm. You pick on one, you pick on all. Sorry, That's right. That's right. The law of the wild mm. right there in your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to our app pick for the week. Right. What it's not quite what? an app pick. It's oh. a tech tip. Ooh. Yeah. I, I've as opposed it. to a tax tip. Yeah, you haven't a... done it. I, oh, I'm assuming yeah. we're going to have a bumper because, you know, June 30 is close, Val. So oh. I'm thinking that there's going to need to be a bumper tax tips next yes. week. Yes. All right. I must write that down. I'm going to write mm, that down. Write that right down. Now. You better write a blog post. Tax tips. All right. So the tech tip for the week is particularly for people who use Gmail. Now, the keyboard shortcuts on Gmail, if you have not yet discovered the keyboard shortcuts on Gmail, just Google keyboard shortcuts on Gmail. <laughs> And they will save you so much time. Since I've discovered them, I use Control or Command E all the time, which immediately archives the email that you're looking at. Um, and also Control or Command Return sends the email that you're on. And then um, there's a whole host of others which I'm constantly using, which are just fantastic. There's keyboard shortcuts for making bullet points and for doing numbering. And I used to like it, it cuts out several mouse clicks. Oh, <laughs> several mouse clicks! Wow. I know that again. Ooh, I've just found a blog post that, that is called the twenty. See, this is the beauty of, of, of Google. I love it. The twenty-five Gmail keyboard shortcuts that save me sixty hours per year. There you go. Right there. There you go. Shall I put that link in the show notes? That would be great. Okay. I reckon since I've discovered them, it probably actually does save me at least mm, 20 minutes a day. Okay. I would That's say. Good. Yes, right. true. possibly more. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll, let's, we'll just... let's do that. Everybody get involved and please let us know which is your particular favourite keyboard shortcut for Gmail. Or even if you use them or did you know about them before? I didn't know about them. Okay. I have to confess. I mean, here I am and I'm, you know, like I'm giving you grief, but I didn't even know that there were shortcuts. So there you go. Trust I me. learned something new today. Control right E saves me so much time. Control E. Or Command E. All right, let's move on to our working writer's tip this week. This question comes from Natalie. Now, Natalie says, thank you for the wonderful writing podcast. I've been listening from the beginning and I'm currently up to episode 58. My goal is to be up to date before I finish my book. (laughs) I hope she's going to hear this because, you know, she's only up to 58. She's got 50 episodes to go before she gets to this one. We will ping her and and let her know so she can fast forward. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Natalie says, I'm also a graduate of two Australian Writers' Centre online courses. I have a question regarding fiction novel writing. I am working on my first fiction novel and I would like to hire a professional freelance editor to have a look at it before I submit the manuscript to agents and publishers. Which is the better stage to submit to a freelance editor when I have written it to the absolute best I can or earlier on in case the freelance editor suggests major changes that may make all that extra polishing a waste of time? If you happen, oh no, and and that sorry, that's the that's the that's the end of the question. Sorry, so I'm going to okay. throw you on that one. <laughs> All right. So the question is basically, I'm working on my first novel. What is the best stage to submit it to a freelance editor when I've written it to the absolute best I can, or earlier on? Okay. Mm. So there's two parts to this. Um, so I 
Firstly, I know lots of people who do use a freelance editor before they send their book to an agent or publisher. Um, it's not completely necessary. If you send it into a publisher, they will tell you what all the problems are. But that's that's it's a personal choice. Mm. Um, I have in the past used a freelance editor on particularly my women's fiction because I'm still you know getting that right. And we actually interviewed many many moons ago, and I'm not even sure uh, Natalie might even be up to this issue. Um, Nicola O'Shea, who is the freelance editor. Um, and she's terrific, and I have used her before. She has um, has gone through uh, my manuscripts for me to help me point, you know, just to help me. Mostly a structural edit. That's where I go for a freelance editor is with a structural edit. Um, is this making sense? Are these characters making sense? You know, where am I getting this right? Where am I getting this wrong? Um, well, so, well, before you go on, let's let's just make that clarification because Natalie hasn't actually clarified whether she's referring to a structural edit. Or a you know copy like a edit. or a copy edit. Mm. So I guess we should treat we should discuss both of them. So let's talk about a structural edit first. So where and that basically means the editor is going to look at your overall story and see that it makes sense, obviously, and that it is structured in the right way. So it has the right plot points, the right pacing. The editor starts in the right place. Starts yeah, in the right place. A big, yes. That's a big thing. But does it start in the right place? Have you got too much backstory? Yeah. Do your characters make sense? Does your subplot make sense? Do you have a subplot? You probably need a subplot. Um, those kinds of things. They the don't. There, they don't look at punctuation and spelling and grammar and you know that sort of stuff. Or they might look no. at it, but that's not their emphasis. No, that's not their emphasis. Um, so, and then a copy edit or line edit is where they, you know, they go through it sort of line by line, checking it at a sentence level. So, structural is story. And then a copy edit is sort of your sentence level. And then by the time you get to a proofread, you're at full stop level. Yeah. I guess that's the way I usually break it down. Sent- you know, story, sentences, full stops. Yeah. Um, so when's the best stage to submit to a freelance editor? You have to submit it. You have to send it to a freelance editor when you think it's the best it can be already. Yeah. That's, that's my advice. I believe so too. Don't send a first draft because it, it's too much – um, you pay, you're going to pay a lot of hours for someone to go through a first draft with you and then go back and do it because it, it's a first draft is a really is it's not going to be your best work. Yeah. So you need to edit it yourself at least once, at least once before you send it off to a freelance editor, at least mm-hmm. once. Um, and then it, it's going to come back. And you know what? There's still going to be major changes. You could probably edit it five times, and an editor is still going to come back with changes. Yeah. Um, but at least you'll have a really clear idea of who your characters are and what's going on in your story. You will have already noticed where things have gone wrong um, and you'll be able to fix them because you'll notice where things don't make sense, where a character who was, you know, indecisive in the first chapter is suddenly making decisions left, right and centre by chapter three, Mm. things like that. So you need to kind of look at it yourself first a couple of times before you go to an editor with it and then then you go back and start again. Yeah. (laughs) And I 100% agree. It should be the best that you can, particularly if you're sending some half-assed thing to a freelance editor and they're making the assumption that this is the quality of your writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's, sure, they'll give you tips and stuff like that, but editors like working with good stuff and they like and, – and when they read good stuff and they know that this is what's possible, they also give – um, feedback based on that level of quality of writing, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Whereas the other, no, no, go on. Well, the other thing I was going to say is the other thing to consider is, is it a freelance editor that, 
editor that you want or is it a manuscript assessment service? Because they are two different things. A manuscript assessment service is generally not as expensive for starters um, and will just give you an overview of whether or not your book is at publishable standard. Is it, you know, um, where does it fit in the market? Is it something that, you you know, is the voice right? Is it something that you need to, like, it assesses the manuscript as it is. uh, Whereas an editor, a freelance editor, is going to take the book apart because Mm. that's what they do. Mm. Yes. Yes, so good, good answers. But really have a listen to Nicola O'Shea's, have a listen to that uh, podcast episode with Nicola. And I think we also talked at some point to Kylie Mason, didn't we, who is another excellent freelance editor. So we've got two. And then there's also, I think we've got a couple of other podcast episodes where we've spoken to publishers like Suzanne O'Sullivan from Ashet, and we've Mm -hmm. talked to... Oh, there's a few in there. But seriously, have a listen Bernadette to the Foley. editors, Bernadette Foley. Have a listen to the people we've talked to on that subject, the editors we've talked to. They'll tell you, um, you know, when it's ready for them to have a look at it. Mm. Mm. All right. We hope that's useful, Gosh, Natalie. I did rabbit it on again. I'm obviously on fire today. It was. I was so motivated by that shout-out in the first little bit that I've rabbited on. <laughs> well, you can rabbit on a bit more on our platform-building tip. Oh, yes. I do have a little bit of a rabbit to have here. In okay. fact, I've got, a, I've got not so much a rabbit as a rant. Okay. Um, now, you know, we talk about author, you know, build your author platform and we've talked about lots of different things, but I just want to have a little chat today about the importance of author manners. And I know that this makes me sound like a head prefect, um, but it's actually really important and it's something I've noticed it's, it's become very apparent to me in the last few weeks because I've started my new Facebook group, which is Your Kids Next Read. And, you know, it's got a community there of about three, I don't know, 350, 400 people wow. who are clearly interested in children's books. And what the, we welcome authors into our group, as we do at the Pink Fibro. And I always make it very, very clear that we welcome authors, but this is not a space for self-promotion. Mm-hmm. Readers groups are not a place for you to drop your links that say, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. And yet, despite the fact that I've made it quite clear, we still have people doing that. Mm. And, of course, you know, with me as head prefect, you just get deleted and blocked like you're gone. Mm. (laughs) I do give you one get-out-of-jail-free card, but that's it. And because I make it quite clear, very clear, um, it's really rude. It's like walking into a party and throwing your business card at people and shouting, buy my book at them. Is that mm. what you would do? It's not what you would do. Mm. So groups like that are great for authors because it gives them an opportunity to get involved in conversations with readers, to give advice. You know, in a book, in a situation like that, people are looking for new books for their kids to read. And so it gives you an opportunity to promote, you know, other people's work. And by promoting other people's work, your name becomes an integral part of the group. And people like me, who are the head prefect of the group, will always put your new release into that group. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Because that's kind of my role there. You don't have to do it. If you do it properly, I'll do it for you. You want other people talking about your books. You don't want to be shouting at about them all the time yourself. Yeah. So if you are involved in Facebook groups like that, please don't drop your links on other people's pages, in other people's groups. It doesn't do you any favours. Wow. Have you... Are Sorry, you happy that me. you got off? You got that off your chest. Well, I just—it really, honestly, as a person who admins those groups, it's very, very annoying. I just find it really, really hard. The other thing that I also wanted to talk about was the value of saying thank you when people retweet your stuff or they talk oh, about your yes. stuff. 
you know, there is so much value in going in there and saying thank you. I saw in again in our Your Kids Read, Your Kids Next Read Facebook group, um, uh, um, one of our, our members, uh, she reviews books with her daughter and, you know, puts them on Instagram and things like that. And it was um, a fabulous thing because she put up an Instagram post um, about a book and the author had come over and had said thank you very much for the review. So not only had the that had they reviewed the book but she then shared that Instagram post and how excited her daughter was into the Your Kids Next Read group which you know possibly none of those people would ever have seen it so it's like the value of saying thank you you know cannot be underestimated. And of course, you know that burglar that Procrasty Pup was barking about. He's They're obviously trying, now phoning, trying me. to ring you. Yes, clearly, <laughs> very, very persistently. Very persistent. I'm very busy today. Who'd have thought I would ever be so busy? <laughs> Sorry, team. Yeah, that's okay. It's 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 authentic. It is authentic. No, Here sorry. I am, my busy newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I wonder what he wants to tell you. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that rant, and um, I agree one hundred. Would you back me up on that? Yes. Absolutely, would back you up on all of those things. Mm. Manners is just you know pretty straightforward, really, and um, of course that and other platform building tips, including an entire blueprint on how to build your author platform uh, in Alison's fantastic course called How to Build Your Author Platform. (laughs) And I promise I'm not on my soapbox the whole time. No, no. I'm a very, very caring, sharing kind of girl. Extremely practical with lots of takeaways, lots of templates and lots of steps that if you take them, you will build your author platform. And you'll find out more about that at writerscentre.com.au slash platform now before that burglar comes back out mm-hmm. time to go oh, i think so <laughs> where do we find you online you'll find me at alisontait.com r-a-l-l-i-s-o-n-t-a-i-t.com oh and keep an eye on that because i'm going to be having a big redesign in a little while so i'm in the process of organizing Ooh. that um you'll find me on twitter at at al tate a-l-t-a-i-t and you'll find me on instagram and facebook at alison tate writer and you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. I am the Valerie Koo on Snapchat, which I'm actually quite enjoying these days. Uh, okay. <laughs> and um, and because uh, you kind of think, oh, I'll just say that because it's going to disappear in seven seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be a dangerous thing for me. Imagine is. how many rants I could fit in on a daily basis. Oh, I know. It is a little bit dangerous. Uh, and I'm also on um, Facebook. So thank you for listening. The show notes, of course, you can find at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au and we look forward to chatting to you again next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.